Please to John chapter 11, and in your books, we're going to be on lesson number 110, the resurrection and the life part two. We're going to be trying to cover verses 17 all the way to 54. Well, Jesus was at Bethabara, and it was the tail end of his very fruitful Perean ministry. It was just a matter of weeks before the Passover feast when a messenger approached him with an urgent message from Martha and Mary of Bethany, 25 miles away, and that message had to do with their brother Lazarus. What was the message? Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is gravely to the point of death sick. sick. And that was in verse 3. What was his return message to them? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Verse 4. It was a message that he, being omniscient, knew the sisters would not receive until Lazarus, in fact, had already died and been buried. But he sent it anyway because he was trying to urge the two women to believe his word, no matter how discouraging the circumstances might appear. And as you can imagine, when they got the message, it would have done little to help them deal with their immense sorrow over not only the loss of their brother, but I think, too, also over their disappointment with the one in whom they had placed their faith as the long-awaited Messiah Savior. Why hadn't he come? Don't you know that they would have asked each other, you know, why why, if he had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have, have died. Why didn't he come? He had healed many other people. Why not their beloved brother? After all, they had been the ones who had opened their home to him so many times and been so hospitable. So why did he heal others and not Lazarus? Why didn't he come back with the messenger? You know, it would have been too late anyway. Lazarus would have been two days dead, but at least it would have shown them that he really cared or at least they thought. You see, at this point, they didn't, they didn't know what you and I know. They didn't know uh, what we know from reading John's account. And don't forget that the account we're reading was written by a man who was there. He was an eyewitness to this whole scene. So they didn't know that the Lord had purposely remained in Bethabara an additional two days because he was going to do something that was exceeding abundantly above all that they could have ever thought to have asked for. He was going to greatly display his glory and the Father's glory to them and stretch not only their faith, the faith of Martha and Mary, but also stretch the faith of his beloved disciples in the process. Martha and Mary were therefore experiencing the delay of omnipotent love. And we talked a lot about that last week. If you weren't here, you might want to get the CD. But we... Um, we learned last week as we looked at the first 16 verses of John chapter 11 that delay might be hard on the flesh. And it is, isn't it? We all do not care too much about delay. And one thing we never want to pray for is patience. Delay is hard on the flesh. But delay is really good for the faith, for one's faith. When confronted by circumstances that don't seem to make much sense to us, what are we to do? We're to walk by faith and not by sight. The situation in that beloved Bethany home was certainly about as hopeless as a situation can get. And yet they had received a promise from the word of God himself. Death was not going to be the final outcome of that sickness. 
Now, it would be part of the affliction, but it would not be the final victor. So to this point in our study of John chapter 11, we have been hearing a lot about death and despair. Uh, The good friend of Jesus was dead, and Jesus loved Lazarus. The other disciples loved Lazarus, but he was dead. Martha and Mary had buried their seemingly, I think he was their one and only brother, We don't hear about any other brothers, but they had buried him. And the mourners had descended upon them. How would you like that for your occupation? There were actually professional mourners who would come and professionally wail and weep. Have you ever heard some of those mourners? I have because it come from a Greek Orthodox background where they actually wail and weep. And it's just, it's, it's very especially as a child it was very frightening but they had descended upon them and the lord's disciples of course were sorrowing not only over the loss of their good friend lazarus but they were also consumed with thoughts about the possibility of the death of their own master at the hands of the pharisees and as we read further in this account we'll see that the pharisees are also thinking a lot about death because who do they want to put to death they want to put to death jesus and Lazarus, poor guy, you know, just comes back to life again and they want to put him right back in the tomb. So everyone's focus so far in this chapter is on death and the desolation and the despair that death brings with it. So no wonder Bethany means what in Hebrew? House of affliction, house of mourning. But... This dark and gloomy, depressing background would only make the display of the great power and glory of the one who is the resurrection and the life shine much more brilliantly. Don't you know that's why they always put diamonds on a black velvet background? Because they just shine forth all the more beautifully. In our outline for this study, this is a two-part study. Last week we looked at the report. That was the first 16 verses. Today, I'm going to try to get through the resurrection, which is verses 17 to 44, and the reaction to the resurrection, which would be verses 45 to 54. I might wind up just reading those verses, and we'll dismiss, and you can read more about it in your books. But the resurrection, if you're looking at the first page in your lesson, consists of three subdivisions. We'll start with the special dialogue between the Lord and the sisters, verses 17 to 32. Then the sympathetic deity, 33 to 38. And finally, the supernatural deliverance, verses 39 to 44. So let's begin by looking at the special dialogue. And for this, we start with verse 17. All right. You know, after the Lord had told, he'd waited two more days after receiving the message about Lazarus. He waited two more days. And he says, okay, guys, we're going to go. And I, Lazarus is dead, but I am going to go rise, raise him from his sleep. And um, they don't want him to because they know for sure something's going to happen because last time he'd been there, the Jews tried to stone him to death. Did, uh, Didymus, who's Thomas, says to his fellow disciples, okay, well, if he's so determined to go back to that area of Jerusalem, let's go with him so that we might die with him. And then starting in verse 17, we read, then when Jesus came, that means he walked the 25 miles and he came to the area of Bethany, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. That would be, of course, Lazarus. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, was close by, about 15 furlongs off. Now, a furlong is about an eighth of a mile. So this is where we understand and know that Bethany was approximately two miles from Jerusalem. 
verse 19, and many of the Jews. Now notice if you circle in your Bible, the Jews. The Jews always refers to the religious rulers, which is interesting. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat in the house. The word still is not in the original Greek. Whenever a word is in italics, it means it's not in there. When it says that she sat still in the house, it kind of implies that she heard the message, but she just stayed in the house and didn't go out to see Jesus. We'll talk more about that, but remember, the word still is not there. Verse 21, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, and this is one of my all-time favorite verses in the scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. That is a fantastic statement there of confession matched probably only by Peter's over in John chapter 6. I told you Martha and Peter belong together, you know. <laughs> John, I know, matchmaker, matchmaker. John and Mary and Peter and Martha. All right, but the problem is Peter was already married. That's right. <laughs> okay, and when she had said so, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that... This is Mary. She rose, arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town. Notice that. He's not into Bethany. He's on the outskirts. But was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews, there they are again, then which were with her, Mary, in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she did what she always does when we see her. She fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Okay, we'll stop right there for now. Interestingly, it appears that the Bethany family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus was very prominent. Now, we know they were very wealthy from a number of situations that are given to us, but they were also very prominent because many of the Jews from nearby Jerusalem came to them to comfort them concerning their brother Lazarus. Now, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? Lazarus could have been a priest. He could have been one of the religious crowd. I don't think he was a Pharisee, and I know he wasn't a Sadducee because his sisters believed in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But he could have been a religious ruler. I mean, he could have walked to work. You know, Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem. So um, whatever the case may have been, this family was very wealthy, and it was very uh, well-known. It was a prominent family. Five times in this text. I think it's five. You can Somebody can go and check on me. But five or six times... We read about the Jews, the religious rulers who came to Bethany in sympathy of Lazarus's death. Perhaps 
Jesus purposely stayed away from Bethany for those extra two days so that the visitation crowd from Jerusalem would have thinned out. There would have been many more Jews there if he had arrived two days earlier. Now, when they had a funeral, they had a whole week following the funeral of visitation. And remember, this was not a signed miracle for the nation, was it? If you missed that and you're confused about that, it was a sign miracle just for his disciples to stretch their faith because they were going to need that extra faith when a couple of weeks from here he's laid in a tomb. So perhaps, now we know there's other reasons, of course, why he stayed away from Bethany for the extra two days. But p- perhaps one of the reasons was so that uh, fewer of the Jews would be present. Okay, well, apparently he sent word of his arrival to the mourning household from somewhere on the outskirts of Bethany. And again, this was to avoid, you know, a bigger crowd. He didn't go right to the household where there were many of these Jews. He stayed outside of Bethany, sent word to the house, and um, Martha, being the older of the two sisters, was obviously the sister to whom the message was delivered. And I can picture her because of her character, you know, her, she just had a a personality that was outgoing much more than Mary. Mary's back in the house sitting, weeping, and she has all these people around her mourning with her. But Martha was probably the one who was at the door of the house, greeting the people as they came in. And so she would have received the message, first of all, that Jesus was in the area. And being a woman of practical duty and impulse and great energy that she was, as soon as she heard that Jesus was here, she took off to go meet with him. I think she completely forgot about her sister, Mary, in the house. She just didn't bother to tell Mary. And I'll give you more reasons for why I believe that. But she just took off to meet the Lord. She was wise, very, very wise, to pursue Christ in her time of sorrow because as she would soon discover no one gives better comfort at such times right and no one but christ can give you the comfort that you need at a time like this now the greek word which is used in verse 19 for comfort look at that verse and see the word comfort the comfort that the jews came to offer martha and mary It is not the same Greek word that is used to speak of divine comfort, which is made possible through the indwelling presence of the comforter, God, the Holy Spirit. Remember what the word for the comforter is? Paraclete. Same word for bosom. When we discussed paradise, Abraham's bosom, it's that same word paraclete, the comforter. People in the paradise section of Hades were comforted. But the word that is used in verse 19 for the comfort the Jews came to give was a different word. It is a Greek word that speaks of human comfort. You know, uh, human, and it's nice to have people come and put their arms around you and give you comforting words and console you at times of sorrow. But human comfort, although it's nice, is totally meaningless apart from divine comfort. The greatest comfort a human can give to a person in sorrow is to quote to them the word of God because that's, on, that's where the true comfort comes, is only in the promises of God, right? Well, anyway, uh, when, when Martha met with the Lord somewhere private, all she could think to do was 
that's why she's like Peter, you know. She just says what she's thinking. All she could do was uh, blurt out what had been uppermost in her mind for the last several days, and that was, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, I have no doubt that the way she said that, you know, there's a lot in a tone. I have no doubt at all that the way she said it wasn't harsh, and it wasn't mean, and it wasn't snarling. I don't think she said, Lord, if you'd been here. You know, she didn't say it like that. She said, Lord, if thou had only been here, my brother had not died. But nonetheless, no matter how she said it, uh, it was the form of a protest. And it was an expression of her disappointment. It also, if you think about it, it was a manner of blaming him for Lazarus's death. And, uh, you know, because basically that's what she said. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. He died because you weren't here. And it was a statement that showed her own limited faith in his power. It limited his power, you see, to time. He was too late. If thou hadst been here, he wouldn't have died. And it also showed her limited faith in his power as to location. She said, if thou hadst been where? Here. She certainly was not expressing the, the kind of faith that the Roman centurion had. Remember him? Those of you who were with us a couple years ago when we discussed the Roman centurion. Because he had believed that all Christ had to do, even from a distance was speak the word and his young servant boy would be healed. And that was, wow, that's why he was the only man in scripture who was commended for having what kind of faith? Great faith. You ought to admit that is great faith, especially on that side of the cross, you know, and seeing a man who was God. That's, that had to have been difficult. But, but Martha didn't believe to that point. Uh, she, did, she didn't believe to the point of having resting faith. In other words, she was not entrusting the matter completely into the Lord's hands. If she had had great faith, she might have said something more like this. Lord, you sent us your word. I have your word to cling to. You sent us your word that this sickness would not be unto death. So I am just so eager to see what you are going to do in this situation. <laughs> I can't wait to see how you're going to glorify yourself and how your father in heaven is going to be glorified. Now that would have been great faith, right? Instead, like almost every one of us would have done if we were in her sandals, she trusted Jesus as Lord. She called him Lord, but she questioned what he had allowed to, to happen. But then also like so many of us what did she do she wavered in her faith because she she seems to after she made that statement if you'd been here lord he wouldn't have died she seems to have been convicted by her own words and her own reproach of the lord and her blame of him and her display of limited faith in him because immediately on the heels of saying that she quickly said but i know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. That's in verse 22. Now, that sounds to me like she wanted to overcome her doubts regarding the hopelessness of the situation. She had a spirit that wanted to believe, but her flesh was weak. 
right? Uh, her, her rational thinking about the situation and her flesh were getting in the way, which, of course, we can all identify with here. And neither did Martha understand that Jesus had life in himself. I mean, he is life, the life. She didn't understand that. And she didn't understand that when he performed miracles, it was by his own divine power and not like the Old Testament prophets such as Elijah and Elisha, who were human instruments through whom God spoke and performed miracles. We know that this is how she believed, that she didn't believe that he was God himself because of the word ask. Look at that word verb in verse 22. She says, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. The word she used there for ask indicated that she did not know that the one she was speaking to was the creator and that he is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily because that verb is a word that speaks of a creature, a created being speaking or asking a favor of the creator. It's a word that is used of an inferior asking a favor of a superior. This word for ask, by the way, was never, ever used by Christ himself when he was asking something of his father. The verb he used for ask was always a verb that was an equal asking of an equal. Isn't that interesting to know? I wish we saw some of these differences in our English translation. But uh, so even, you see, even in her rebound attempt to praise the Lord, it was still a limited praise because she demoted him from his equality with God the Father. So we find that Martha is so much like you and I. She's a combination of uh, faith and doubt and praise and protest. But wonderfully, does the Lord understand our weak human nature? Yes, he does. So wonderfully, he understood the struggle that she was having in her mind and in her heart. And so he moved to help her by giving her a very straightforward promise in verse 23. What did he say? Couldn't have made it any clearer. He said, thy brother shall rise again. Lazarus would be raised from the dead. It was a prophetic announcement in advance of the miracle he was about to perform. But Martha missed the meaning of the promise by applying it only to a future general you know, resurrection. She said, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection when? At the last day. You see, Martha had faith for the past. She said, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. She had faith about the past. She knew that the Lord Jesus could ask of his father anything he wanted, and he could have raised Lazarus from his terrible sickness. So she didn't deny his power. She had faith in the past, and um, she obviously here has faith for the future, the distant, the far distant future. Oh, yes, I know I'm going to see my brother again in the resurrection at the end of, time, at the, end of the, you know, the last days. But so much like you and I, she had problem with the immediate present. She had completely given up on the situation regarding her dear brother. Isn't that just like you and I? I mean, we can look at the past, we can read the Bible, the Old Testament, and we, we believe that God spoke the word and the entire universe came into existence. 
We believe that through Moses, he splitted the Red Sea. We believe all the, uh, you know, I hope you do, because the Bible is true, all the miracles of the Old Testament. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's a, a pretty incredible miracle. And that he even raised Lazarus from the dead. Oh, yeah, we know that happened. And then we read the book of Revelation and other, you know, pr- prophecy scriptures about the end times. And we know that we're really close to them. <laughs> Um, but we know that there is going to be the rapture of the church. We believe that. We, we believe in the tribulation. We believe in the, um, the, the wonderful second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where he'll reverse the curse and there'll be a millennial kingdom for a thousand years where he reigns and then we'll go on into the eternal state. We believe all that, don't we? Believe the past. We have faith for the past. We have faith for the future. But when we have a little bitty problem that comes into our lives today, I can't, hey, Lord, I don't think you can handle this. I just, I think this is just too much. Isn't that utterly, absolutely, we do it, but isn't it ridiculous? It's not logical. For one thing, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He has the same power he's always had and always will have. Well, in the next fantastic statement, the Lord Jesus wanted to take Martha from thinking about a future event, you know, the general resurrection, to thinking of him and the present. So in his fifth, fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John, and how many I am statements are in the Gospel of John? Even if you didn't know, you could guess. (laughs) Seven. In his fifth one, and five is the number for grace, and I can't think of a statement more full of grace than this one. I am the resurrection and the life. That's his fifth one. Now, what were the other? Let's review real quickly. What was the first I am statement in John's gospel? It was back in John chapter 6. I am the... Very good. Bread of life. Then we had, I am the, John chapter 8, light of the world. And we had, I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. And now we have, I am the resurrection and the life. It was immaterial for Martha to think in terms of any difference when it came to Christ and the past, the present, or the future. Because Jesus is, I am which is the name for Jehovah God who lives in the continuous present tense. I am that I am. Time is not the issue with God. He's outside of time. He doesn't have to wear a wristwatch. Boy, I would like that. I always run out of time. He was saying to Martha, he was saying to her, uh, I am the issue. Resurrection power doesn't rely on a time schedule. It relies on a person. And Jesus is that person. Now notice he didn't say that he gives resurrection and life. He says he is resurrection and life. You know, resurrection life is a quality of life. That is everything that Jesus is. Oh, yes, there's life, other life, that's just existence life, but it's just that. It's just life that exists. It doesn't have resurrection life. Because to have resurrection life, you have to have Christ in you. He is the resurrection and the life. So when you have Christ 
in you. You have resurrection life. You have everything that Christ is. What is Christ? Well, he is light and he is love and he is the truth and he is peace and he is joy and he is purity and he is holiness. Everything that he is, is resurrection life. Are you following me? <laughs> Notice he didn't say, um, well, now I, I said that he, he didn't say he gives resurrection life. He is resurrection life, but he does. He is the one and only one who can give resurrection and life. But the main point that he's trying to stress in this statement is that he is the very being and the very essence and the very source of and the very power of and the very energy of life itself. There would be no life without him. He is the life. All right, but receiving eternal life is conditional. There is something that a person has to do in order to receive eternal life, and Jesus Christ is eternal life. I think it's one of the last verses in First John, isn't it? Jesus Christ is eternal life. When you receive him, you immediately have eternal life. You never die. That's what his promise is here. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, that speaks of the body, though the body was dead, yet shall he live. And then verse 26 speaks of the spirit. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The spirit, the soul never dies. And then, of course, he asked her, the human responsibility side of it is that we must Believe, He says, believest thou this three times? He uses the word believe. He that believeth, whosoever, and notice the gospel is open to all men, whosoever liveth, and that's a key word too. You have to believe while you're still living. Whosoever liveth and believeth shall never die. And by the way, the never die is given in the emphatic Greek double negative shall never know never die never know never die and this is why jesus asked martha believest thou this that's the human responsibility side of salvation which is faith the act of believing if you want receive to receive eternal life you have to believe in what he just stated here in these two verses and believe that he is who he claimed to be the resurrection and the life and he will give you eternal life you know unbelief Unbelief gains a person absolutely nothing whatsoever that is worthwhile at all. And that, of course, unbelief is Satan's big tactic. He wants the world not to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the resurrection and the life. Unbelief leaves a person totally empty-handed and with that big void in their soul totally unfulfilled. It's unbelief that strips a person completely of, of receiving Christ himself, who is everything. He is the resurrection and the life. Now, there is a resurrection and a life. I mean, all, even the unsaved, as we talked about a few weeks ago, even the unsaved will have resurrection life, but not the resurrection life. And they'll have life, but it's just existence. And that's really the worst part of the torment of the lake of fire because they just exist forever void of the resurrection and the life. So you see, for forever, they're void of Christ. So what does that mean? They're void of truth. They're void of life. They're void of love, peace, joy, holiness, purity, everything. Worst part of, of hell is that torment. Well, when Martha was asked if she believed... 
what he had just said, that he is the resurrection and the life and the one upon whom one must believe to receive resurrection life. She, again, can't help but love this woman. She gave an instant profession of her faith in him that did not mince words at all. I mean, her profession did not contain any maybes. Maybe you are the Christ. Maybe you're not. I don't know. I've got to think about it. No perhapses at all in this statement. It was dogmatic. It was forthright. And it was unashamed. She said, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. That was a confession statement of his messiahship. He's the Christ. Uh, of his deity. I think she said more than she really fully believed up here. You know, I think the Lord inspired her, the Holy Spirit inspired her to make this statement. But she said that he's the Son of God. That's a claim to his deity or a profession of his deity. And she also believed in his incarnation, which should come into the world. She believed that he pre-existed as the son of God and that, you know, at one time he lived in another world, but he came into this world as a man. That's a pretty magnificent statement. It's, uh, like I said, it's comparable to Peter's statement over in John, uh, John chapter 6, verse 69. It's a statement, it's a profession that is both Christ-honoring and Christ-centered. And it proved to us that Martha was no fair-weather uh, Christian. Yes, her beloved brother had just died, but that did not reduce her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had disappointed her by not answering her request in the way that she had hoped he would, but nonetheless, she still believed he was who he claimed to be. And you know, it took a lot of boldness at this point in time to take a stand for Jesus, especially from such a prominent person as Martha was, you know, known so well in nearby Jerusalem. Her house back in Bethany was filled with the Jews. So it took, you know, she could have been desynagogued. She could lose all, all her friends. You know what? But she didn't care. She did not care what the world thought of her faith in Jesus. She often opened her home to him, fed him. She loved him. She didn't care what the world thought because she had Jesus. That's all that really matters. But I commend her for that statement. Now she's going to waver again. We're going to see that. But you know, the complete conversation that Martha and Jesus had with one another is not recorded for us. But he obviously asked her to go and get her sister. And uh, and he ha he had moved in her heart. Look where she started when he she started her conversation with him. She said, "Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't die." Look where she ended. You know, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So he already has moved her quite a bit. She's been comforted by the comforter, the Lord. And now, once we've been comforted, what is our task? To go out and comfort others with the comfort which we have received. And so he sends Martha to go get her sister so she too can be comforted. And now in getting Mary, we note that Martha did so secretly. Look at verse 28. And this again was obviously so that word would not spread to nearby Jerusalem that he was back in the area. He did not want to know, want Jerusalem to know, the Sanhedrin to know that he was in the area um, because it wasn't his hour to die. The Passover was still a, a couple weeks away. Um, and so he would perform this miracle and then leave the area. And you can get a sneak preview by looking at verse, uh, let's see, where is it? 54. That he, as soon as this miracle is performed, he leaves. He goes to a place called Ephraim. 
So Martha went to Mary secretly, and she probably whispered to her, because Mary's surrounded by all these people comforting her. She whispers and says, The master is come, and he calleth for thee. And as soon as Mary hears those words, this is why I don't think she knew before. As soon as she hears Martha say that, what does she do? She arose quickly and came unto him. Verse 29, and verse 31 tells us again how hastily she arose and went out to him. And uh, the Jews who were there with her in the house comforting her, and by the way, the word for comfort, verse 31, is the same human kind of comfort that we read about up in verse 19. Those Jews misunderstood her sudden action and that she, they thought she was going where? To, to the tomb, to weep. And they, and they would do that all the following week. Week, They would go out to the, the cemetery, the tomb, uh, back and forth and, and um, stand outside the the tomb and weep so they thought that uh, that's where she was going and they wanted to weep with her and comfort her so they followed her and we can therefore imagine their surprise when instead of going to the tomb she leads them straight to who to jesus isn't that wonderful it's it's wonderful especially when we read that many of the look at verse 45 talked about this last week but many of the jews which came to mary And we're sitting with Mary in the house, and I think Mary was giving them some of the words that she had heard from Jesus. But and and when they had seen the things which Jesus did, in other words, when they saw Lazarus rise from the dead, what happened? They believed on him. And I thought, how wonderful this is. This whole family was used to the Lord as a testimony to others to bring others to Christ. First of all, Lazarus, someone had to die to draw the crowd. Lazarus died so that there would be a crowd gathered. And then Martha was told that Jesus was. So she goes out and she gets comforted. She comes back and she gets Mary. Mary goes out to the Lord. And who follows Mary but a crowd? They all go out to the tomb. A miracle happens. The resurrection and the life proves he is who he is and people get saved and i thought that's how i want funerals to be that's how funerals should be where you know someone dies but you get a crowd the message of the resurrection and the life is given and hopefully people will be saved what a great it's a great opportunity for others to be led to the lord i know when my mom died and my aunt her sister got saved at my mom's funeral It was absolutely just took me into the presence of the Lord. It was worth, and my mom had said that, you know, she said it'd be worth me dying if someone would get saved at the funeral. And that's what I want at my funeral. I want lots of people to be gathered and for people to get saved. Don't you all? Yes. Okay. Uh, Where am I? (laughs) Oh, the chain effect of the family. Okay. When Mary reached the Lord... Very characteristically, what did she do? She fell down at his feet. Every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of the Lord, which is a good place to be. And then we have the only recorded words of Mary that we have in all the scripture, and she's parroting what her sister had said. She said exactly the same thing. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But unlike her sister... If you go back and look at verse 21 and verse 22. Now, Martha was a different character. She handled her sorrow differently. Than, you know, people handle sorrow differently than 
one another. But um, Martha just kept on talking after she had made that statement. But Mary apparently was just so choked up with her own tears that she couldn't keep talking. And I don't think she was a woman of a lot of words unless she was teaching other people the word of God. But she just couldn't go on any anymore. So she just lay there at his feet and wept. And the Jews who had followed her wept right along with her. Not with a professionally hired kind of wailing. These Jews were truly moved in their spirit over her weeping. They were weeping with her, which tells us she was really a beloved woman. They loved Mary, and when they saw her sympathy and her pain, they cried with her. And uh, we see also, of course, by her statement, which is identical to her sister's, that she was also having a problem with limited faith. Faith which was based on time, if you'd been here, and faith that was based on location, if you had been here. She did not yet have the great faith either that the Roman centurion had had. Well, this scene moves now to our look at the sympathetic Savior, so let's look at verses 33 to 38. When Jesus therefore therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them, that would be some of the Jews, said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man, speaking of Lazarus, should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. The Lord's response to Mary uh, at his feet, weeping her heart out, and the people who had followed her to him also weeping, was that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And very interestingly, the Greek word that is used for groaned, embryalme, is a word that speaks of being very deeply agitated. It's a Greek, actually it is the Greek word that is used for snort. Sounds weird, doesn't it? But like a horse snorting when it's angry, or a better picture would be of a bull that snorts when it's angry. I could probably snort for you in the microphone, but I don't think, don't think I will. <laughs> You, you can picture that, right? A bull snorting. It's used in the New Testament only one other time, this word. And ironically, it's used um, when... Uh, it, it, actually, it's a word that speaks of great indignation, righteous indignation, okay? And the only other time that it's used is in Mark fourteen four when Judas snorted um, with indignation over the waste of Mary's expensive spikenard perfume when she poured it out on the Lord Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Well, so what was it that caused the Lord's spirit to be so outraged? This is a word of outrage. It's just not a a groaning 
of sorrow. It's an outrage, snorting like a bull. What caused him to be so deeply indignant here in this scene? What troubled him? And by the way, the Greek word that is used for troubled is a word that expresses an agitation to the point where you're shaking all over. My little two-year-old granddaughter does this. <laughs> she does it to be funny because we all laugh at it. But, but Jesus was literally shaking all over with agitation. He was so troubled. What made him groan within his spirit like a mighty bull trying to rein in his anger? What was it? I'll tell you what it was. Sin. Sin. He, w- he was angry about the... What sin has brought into this world? What has sin brought into this world? Death. Satan brought sin into the perfect world that Christ had created. And with sin came death. And with death has come so much sorrow, right? I I was thinking about my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, when he was just a little boy. He lost three of his siblings in one week of the scarlet fever. You know, sin has brought death. Do you like death? I hate death. Now, it's a friend of the believer. The believer is, but I hate it because it separates us, you know. I hate death because it's taken my dad from me. It's taken my mom. It's taken some of your dearest loved ones from you. I hate when I think about all that has been brought into this world because of sin. Just think of all the atrocities that Jesus has seen from where he is. I mean, we, I am so glad I can't see what's going on. I can't even watch to, stand to watch some of the warfare and stuff, violence on television. I just, I don't like, I could never be a nurse because I can't stand But to see what he has seen over the years, the maimings and the killings and the beheadings and the throwing babies into the fire for Molech and and the abortions and the the awful, no wonder. I've got to think, and I was crying about it two nights ago, thinking about um, how difficult it must have been for omnipotence to restrain himself from early judgment. I mean, he was all, he is all powerful. He could have just judged. I don't know what. I mean, he's certainly long suffering, isn't he? <laughs> but to be all powerful and not just to judge everybody when he could, I would have. I would have. If I was omnipotent, I would have judged right at the very beginning when one of my sons killed the other son. That would have been the end of it. You know, when Cain, Cain killed Abel. I maybe could have tolerated them stealing the fruit, but boy, the murder part, that would have been the end. But for, you know, he reigned in his anger. Why? Because he had a job to do first. (laughs) He had to die for the sins of the world and defeat death on our behalf. Well, with everyone in a state of choking tears, he asked to be taken to the tomb. He says, where have ye laid him? And, of course, he didn't ask that question because he couldn't have gone straight there. He could have gone straight to the tomb. But he, um, people and Martha and Mary would be distracted from their sorrow by having something to do. And I thought, well, that's so practical of the Lord. It is practical, right, Anne? 
when you're going through sorrow, to be given something to do, to get busy and do something. And so he distracts them. They have something to do now. They're walking from wherever he was on the outskirts of Bethany to the tomb. And also he wanted to gather everyone at the place where his mightiest miracle, other than his own resurrection, would be performed. Furthermore, if he had walked straight to the tomb, somebody for sure in that crowd, and there were those who refused to believe even after they saw the miracle, so somebody would have accused him him of being in conspiracy with Lazarus over this whole thing. You know, it was just a trick. Lazarus was going to pretend to be dead and then Jesus would come and and he would come walking out of the tomb. Which, by the way, the scripture made sure nobody could do because we further have Martha's protest about removing the stone. I mean, she certainly knew her brother was dead. She knew. There's no doubt. She was not expecting a resurrection. Also, the small size of the tombs. This was a cave, which also shows us they were a wealthy family, but it was a cave where they would uh, carve out of the stone inside the cave um, uh, slabs, thank you, slabs. For it was probably a family tomb. Maybe their mother and father had already been buried in there. But um, So there'd be maybe eight slabs on the sides and one in the center there or something, but it was a, they weren't very big. And um, this tomb was sealed with a stone, which would be like a large millstone. There'd be a groove in front of the cave where they'd roll the stone. So it was sealed shut. Uh, so there wouldn't be any air in there, or very little air could seep through. And besides, we find out in verse 44 that his head was wrapped with what? with a napkin his head was completely bound with a napkin and all of these things testify that Lazarus was not still alive in that tomb after four days even if they had put him in there when he was alive he had been gravely sick so you can imagine putting a gravely sick person in that tomb and sealing it and wrapping his head and putting him airtight he would have suffocated by four days so this is all, you know, showing and nobody challenged that it was, you know, a gimmick. It was it was really a death and a resurrection or a raising to life. What did I call it? Life restoration miracle. Well, this is perhaps the greatest display of Christ's deity during his earthly ministry other than his own. And yet what's interesting is that in this account by John, nowhere is Christ's humanity also more vividly in evidence than when he was on his way to Lazarus's tomb and he did what? This is one verse we all know by heart. Jesus wept. So we, we see not only his deity, but his humanity in this scene. He is the God-man. Now the word for wept is in the Greek, Again, I wish we could see this in our English, but it is uh, the word dakruo, and it occurs only this one time in the scripture in its verb form. It's not the same word for weeping, the weeping of Mary in verse 31. It's not the same word for weeping that is used of the Jews in verse 33. This is not the wailing lamentation of the professional mourners, which happens to be a completely different Greek word. But this word, where it says Jesus wept, dakruo, comes from the Greek word for tear. It speaks of no noise, but just tears flowing down the Savior's face. 
You see, un, unlike his inner groaning of his spirit, his inner snorting with indignation over the consequences of sin, this weeping here in verse 35 was sympathetic human weeping for our pain. This might be the shortest verse in the Bible, and I guess it is, but it is certainly an instructive verse because the sobbing, the the tears flowing down the face of the Savior shows the pain of sin. People in the world might laugh at and they might joke about and they might ridicule how sin is portrayed in the scripture and how we serious, fundamental, narrow-minded Christians call sin, sin. And they might try to disguise it with all their medical terms for it and their politically correct terms for sin. But sin causes the heart of God himself to weep. Lazarus, his friend, had suffered. Now, yes, when he died, that was, that was the good part, you know, because he just immediately crossed over into paradise. But the process of dying was difficult. Lazarus had suffered, and Mary and Martha were brokenhearted because sin had entered into the world and brought with it death. Sin doesn't bring life. I don't know why humans are so prone to sin, because what does it bring? It doesn't bring life. It brings things like deception and lies, hurts, handicaps, disease, maiming, separation, alienation, divorce, abortion, physical abuses, mental abuses, sexual abuses, defeat, depression, corruption, aging, uh, condemnation, Death. Have you heard me say anything good yet? Anything good about sin? And I could go on and on. This is just the beginning of the list of what sin brings. So when we are tempted to sin or to make light of sin, we need to remember to quote this verse to ourselves. And every one of you, I don't care how old you are, you can remember this verse. Remember this verse because it emphasizes the curse of sin in just two words. Jesus wept. He was caught up in the pain and in the heartache of human suffering. You see, his divine side, he had righteous indignation. He wanted to do something about it, and he was going to do something about it. You know, I think part of him really was anxious to get to that cross and defeat sin and death. Don't you? I really do. I think he wanted to get that job taken care of. But the, the humanity side of him... He felt our suffering. You know, this was really a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53.3 says that he, the Messiah, when he came, would be a man of what? Sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the New Testament counterpart to that is that we have a high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like to sorrow. He knows what it's like to stand at the grave of a loved one. He's been there and he's done it. Well, the Jews saw Jesus weeping and it caused them to praise his genuine love for Lazarus. But it also, notice, brought some of them to scorn him. Verse 37, be aware of the fact that if 
You know, oftentimes praise is quickly followed by scorning. If somebody praises you, watch out before you go around the next corner because you're probably going to be criticized. And that's what happened here. Some of the Jews, in effect, said, well, if he loved Lazarus so much, then why didn't he do something about it? After all, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind? Isn't that interesting? They did not deny that he could open the, and that he did open the eyes of the blind. Remember last time he was, well, I don't know, maybe two times ago when he was in Jerusalem, he had opened the eyes of a man born blind. Nobody had ever, ever done that. Not Elijah, not Elijah, no one had ever done that. They don't deny the miracle. They say, you know, couldn't he, this man who had done that, couldn't he have prevented this man, Lazarus, from dying? And note how this scorning group is really kind of suggesting that maybe his tears, the Lord's tears, had been over his own inability to do anything to have helped Lazarus. And notice how they call him this man, this man. And they put him on the same level as Lazarus, who they also call this man. I would venture to say that those who made this comment right here are the same crowd down in verse 46 who after the miracle saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, and yet what did they want to do? They wanted to go running and skipping and leaping two miles over to tell the Pharisees in Jerusalem what had happened in Bethany. Not because they wanted the Pharisees to believe in Jesus. It's because they were a bunch of tattletales. Oh, that's going to tell the big mucky mucks. Maybe they'll give us some money. But whatever all the various thought processes and the motives might have been, we have uh, Christ being blamed. Did you notice this? He is being blamed for the third time in this episode for the death of Lazarus. Martha had said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Now this crowd is saying, you know, if he could open the eyes of the blind, why didn't he, why didn't he raise Lazarus? So he's being blamed for Lazarus's death. And isn't that the, the, the famous thing to do of the world? Don't they love to blame God for everything? You know, doesn't the world decide that a God who allows bad things to happen is either not a loving God or he wouldn't allow those bad things to happen, or he is not an omnipotent God. He loves, yes, he loves, but he's just not powerful enough to do, you know, anything about all the suffering. What the world doesn't understand is that all the suffering of this world has, is a result of, of man's own sin and man's own pride and man's own selfishness. And his only way of redemption from the curse of sin and death is made, pow- is made possible by an all-powerful God who so loved this world that he sent his all-powerful son into the world to defeat sin and death on his behalf. Yes, we have a God who loves. And yes, we have an omnipotent God. Well, either hearing the words of the critics, and I don't know if if these people said it loud enough for Jesus to actually hear their criticism, but it wouldn't matter if he didn't hear because he knows the hearts of man. So he knew their criticism. It says that uh, because of that, therefore, again, he groaned in himself. Verse 38. You see, their scornful unbelief added to his sorrow, especially as he then, at that probably around that same time, arrived at the cave where Lazarus lay within. 
Well, the, the sealed tomb shut tight and secured with that large millstone-shaped stone had an undeniable air of finality about it. You know, death had stung once again, and the grave had won another victory. But suddenly, and I can imagine to the shock of everyone there, Jesus issued forth a command. What was that command? Take ye away the stone. And I am sure they all said, what? You've got to be kidding. Now, of course, you know, the uh, Lord didn't have to say take you. He could have just blasted that stone out of there himself. Just looking at it, he could have blasted it away. But, but he wants people to be involved in his work, so we, are, we get the blessings along with him. Anyway, um, so they're all, I can imagine they're all, what? He's got to be kidding. People just do not do that especially so early in the uh, decomposition process. You know, the Jews did not embalm the dead. The Egyptians back then would embalm the dead, but the Jews didn't. They merely wrapped the body in um, swaddling cloth, which they filled with aromatic spices. And um, so people just didn't do this. And did you notice, too, as I said, that the Lord never performed works in his miracles that men were perfectly capable of doing? He, he, he only used his miraculous power to do what men couldn't do. For example, when he changed water into wine, he could have filled those water pots himself, but he had men do it for him, fill the water pots. They could do that part, only he could turn the water into wine. Same thing with uh, the feeding of the 5,000. He allowed the disciples to be part of the blessing when he fed them. He could have put, he could have gone like this and everybody had their own lunch in their laps. But he used the disciples to distribute the barley loaves. He alone has the power to raise the dead. But men can roll away the stones. And that's a sermon in itself. We can do our part to roll away the stones from people's lives so that they too can receive newness of life in Jesus Christ. Okay, quickly, let's look at the supernatural deliverance, 39 to 44. This is the best part. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe... Thou shouldest see the glory of God. Of course, that goes back to the message he sent back in verse 4 when he was still in Bethabara. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I love this. Just so simply stated, this great miracle, so simply stated, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Well, the Lord's command certainly activated the impulse of Martha, who also, if you can imagine, when the Lord said, take ye away the stone, everyone's eyeballs would have turned to who? Martha, because being the older sister, she was the matriarch of the family, and they all looked to her. Everybody look at her to see what, how is she going to respond to such a command? 
And impulsive Martha didn't hesitate. She quickly sputtered out, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been four days dead. You see, she was back to calling him Lord, but questioning his judgment. So, you know, here again we see wavering faith. She got her focus off of Christ and back onto her crisis. I like that. Off of Christ and onto her crisis. You see, she was, she was focused on the stone and not on the rock. She had her focus on the protection of the stone that hid the corpse. She was not seeing the rock who is the resurrection and the life. Probably like everyone else who was there, who heard the Lord's command, Martha probably thought that Jesus wanted to take one last look at his beloved friend Lazarus. But that was just, in those days, that was just too horrible to think about. And so her statement to him makes two things clear. Nobody, not even the immediate family, was in cahoots with Jesus. This was not a gimmick. Secondly, nobody was expecting a resurrection. She certainly wasn't, even after what he said to her. Your brother shall rise again. She was not expecting a resurrection. I don't even think the Lord's disciples were expecting a resurrection because you would think that if they were, that on their way from the outskirts of Bethany to the tomb, one of them might have whispered to Martha or Mary, don't worry about it. The Lord told us when we were still in Bethabara that, uh, that, uh, that Lazarus was asleep, but that we were coming, we were going to come to Bethany so that he could raise him from his sleep. So don't worry about it. He's going to do something. They didn't say that. So I don't, nobody was expecting what happened. And it was time again for the Lord to remind Martha of his word to her, his promise. Had he not already told her that if she would believe, she would see the glory of God? Had he not sent her a message that she had gotten two days earlier, telling her that this sickness would not be unto death? Death would not be the victor. It's part of the affliction, but it wouldn't be the victor. It would be for the glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified. What was her confession just a little while ago? Had not she said he was the Son of God? You know how quick we are to forget, right? Well, apparently this reminder gave Martha just enough of a glimmer of hope that notice she didn't offer any more protest and she must have given a nod to some of the men that were standing there who then proceeded to roll away the stone from the place where he was dead had been laid. Now, we are not told whether the people got a whiff of the feared odor that they were anticipating, but I strongly doubt it because at that very same time, the Lord Jesus lifted up a sweet-smelling savor to his heavenly Father to thank him for having already heard his prayer. I think that whole atmosphere was immediately filled, permeated with a beautiful aroma. I think Lazarus was alive right then. You know, he had to give the command for him to come forth and come out. But I don't think there was any odor to be feared. I think the Lord lifting up that sweet-smelling savor, and uh, he prayed. He prayed to his heavenly Father to thank him for having heard his prayer. He said, I know you always hear me. 
He knew that Lazarus was going to come back to life. As God, he knew even before Lazarus got sick. But he prayed this prayer verbally so that the people present would know his own intimate um, connection with God the Father and believe that God had sent him into the world as the Savior of the world, the Savior from sin and death. Well, finishing his prayer, he then shouted in a loud voice. Notice it says, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't say, okay, Lazarus, it's time to come out now. <laughs> why, would he, why would he say that in a loud voice? Well, for one thing, the vo- his voice needed to be heard down in the paradise section of Hades. <laughs> Lazarus was down there. You know, Lazarus was just beginning his, his introductions to everybody. He was meeting Adam, and he was meeting Moses, and he was meeting Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, another former beggar by the same name of Lazarus. And then all of a sudden, down there he hears, Lazarus, talking to you. Come on. I don't think he wanted to leave, but had no choice. And uh, out he came. And furthermore, the strength and the volume of the voice needed to match the enormity <laughs> of the miracle. Yeah, I, I can't imagine when God spoke the universe into existence, he said, okay, universe, come into existence now. I mean, it has to, you have to show the, the colossal power of the one who is issuing the command. So he spoke in a loud voice to show who he was. And in case you're wishing, do you ever read something in the scripture and wish you had been there? Oh, man, I would have loved to have been there to see, (laughs) to see this, to hear the Lord shout and then to see Lazarus come walking out of that tomb as an obedient sheep who knows the voice of his good shepherd and follows him out of wherever he may call him, even out of the grave and, and Hades. Well, in case... You wish you could have been there. Don't be too disappointed because we are all going to hear this same loud voice shout out again in a very similar manner, but with an even better command, I believe. I think at the rapture of the church, we're not going to hear the shout come forth. Poor Lazarus. He had to come back out into the same cursed world he had left. He just came forth. When we hear that same loud voice, you know what I think it's going to say? Come up hither. Just like he said to John in John chapter 4, verse 1, which is a picture of the rapture of the church, I believe, because it follows Revelation 2 and 3, which is all about the church. Next thing we see is John being called up hither. And I believe that the next time we hear this voice... It's going to be personalized, just like it was with Lazarus. I don't know how he'll do it, but he's God, so it's not a big problem. But when he says it, it's going to be at the rapture of the church. I believe he's going to say, Catherine Ann Caravis Caldwell, come up hither. And at the same time he's saying my name, he's going to say every one of your names and every name of those who have preceded us in death. And all of us are going to come, not like Lazarus, out in our same old bodies. I don't want this same old body. (laughs) We're going to come out in glorified bodies. And you know what? The next time we hear that loud, or we're going to hear that voice, it's going to be accompanied by another voice, the voice of the archangel. I guess that would be Gabriel. I guess would be that would be the voice of Gabriel and the trump of God. How would you all like to hear God blowing a trumpet? 
Pretty cool, huh? And if you don't believe me, read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So don't be disappointed that we weren't there to see Lazarus come walking out of the tomb. We're going to experience something far better. Well, of course, at the command of the one who holds the keys to Hades and death, both had to yield their captive. Lazarus's soul instantly came forth out of Hades to meet his uh, body, which death immediately had to release. The only thing Jesus, again, and by the way, in case you wondered, how did Lazarus come walking out of the tomb? Did any of you wonder about that? All right, the Jews did not wrap the dead like a mummy in a cocoon kind of thing, like the Egyptians did. Instead, they wrapped, well, they wrapped the head in a napkin, and then they wrapped each limb separately. So the legs were wrapped separately. So he could, you know, come walking out like this. Now, he's all wrapped up, but he could still walk. He looked like, probably like some kind of a Halloween mummy. And can't you imagine everybody just standing there with their mouths gaped open, and nobody says a word. And finally, Jesus, in his compassion, he has to, they're all in such a stupor, he has to give them another command. <laughs> Loose him. Poor guy's going to suffocate to death. He's going to have to be put right back in the tomb if you don't let him breathe. <laughs> Loose his grave clothes. And again, he could have done that. You know, when he resurrected from the dead, nobody had to loose his grave clothes because he got a glorified body. He, resur- he truly resurrected in a glorified body, so he just came right out of those grave clothes. Lazarus came back in his old human body, and he, had, he, didn't bur- he couldn't burst forth the grave clothes, so they were still on him. And, uh, and so he says, loose the grave clothes. He could have done that, but again, he gets men to do what men are capable of doing. And then I love this little extra touch. He says, and let him go. You know what that means? He's saying, people, don't stand around. This poor guy has been through quite a bit. Don't stand around asking him a million and one questions about the afterlife, okay? You know something interesting? We never hear one word from Lazarus. I think God purposely kept him quiet. I mean, I know he talked to people, obviously, but there's nothing recorded in the scripture from him, just like when Paul ascended into the third heaven and was not allowed to tell us anything about it. So he says, let him go. Don't stand around asking him a million questions. Let him go home. He wants to take a nice warm bath. Martha's going to fix him one of her famous meals because I'm sure he's hungry. And uh, don't you know that the sisters want to talk with him? and weep with him except this time not tears of sorrow but tears of unsuppressible joy we know that they were so filled to overflowing that even a week from two weeks from well no i guess it would be about a week later mary is still so overflowing that she takes her expensive spikenard perfume and anoints the lord well We've run out of time again, but what I want to do is just read the verses, and then we'll close. The last section uh, here is the reaction to this miracle. So look with me at verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Isn't that wonderful? Many of the Jews. You know what that means? Many of the religious rulers actually came to believe on Jesus. Yay! Yay! 
But some of them, and I think this is the same crowd back in verse 37 who criticized him, some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? Oh, we've got such a problem for this man. Notice again, this man doeth many miracles. Oh, what a problem they had. This guy was just performing all kinds of miracles. How horrible. Raising the dead even. What are we going to do? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Isn't that something? They they decide that they need to get rid of Jesus so that uh, the Romans won't be upset that the Jews have a new king, you know, and the Romans will come in and take away their place and their nation. See, that's what it's all about. They love being the big mucky mucks and having their power and their preeminence and everything. But it's so ironic because they want to do away with Jesus so that the Romans won't come and take all that away from them. And what happened? That's exactly what did happen. They killed Jesus, and because of that, the Romans came and took away their place in their nation in 70 AD. They should have left Jesus alone, right? (laughs) And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Now this man, Caiaphas, was a wicked Sadducee. He he had no business being the high priest. Wicked, evil man. Notice how the first thing we hear from him is so full of pride. He's talking to his own peers, and he says, You guys don't know anything. Ugh. And then... He goes on and says, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Now, notice he didn't say that it's lawful for us. He he didn't care about the law. He doesn't care about what's right and what's good. He says it's expedient for us, for us, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And then John tells us that he wasn't speaking this of himself. He now gives he gives a prophecy here. Um, And the Lord is using this man to speak this prophecy. Can the Lord use anybody he wants to? Yes. He wasn't using the wicked man. He was using the man's position. He was the high priest of Israel. So he spoke through him like he did. He spoke through Balaam and he spoke through Balaam's donkey. He speaks through this donkey, Caiaphas. And he says, (laughs) at least I use the word donkey, okay? Um, (laughs) He says that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. What nation did Jesus die for? Israel. And notice this. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one children, in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Jesus didn't just die for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. He died for all of his children who would be scattered around the world. Who is that? Us. That he would bring the Jews and us into one. What a prophecy. Okay, verse 53, then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim and there continued with his disciples. You see, he was going to stay away for about another week until the time of the Passover because it was not yet his time to die.